Welcome to World of Dads, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Amjad Masad. Amjad is the founder and CEO of Replit, which is an online coding environment, which I use and I love. Amjad, welcome to World of Dads. Thank you. Excited to be here. I'm really excited as well. Now, part of Replit's vision is to help bring the next, let's say, billion coders online and make them creating software just easier. How do you see the world changing if we've 10x'd the number of software developers? Well, just to step back a little bit and contextualize the moments we're in today, these rapid shifts that happen in human society, you had the agricultural revolution where people went from primarily hunter-gatherer to living in a society where we grow crops and not moving a whole lot. And that changed society fundamentally. And then you had the Industrial Revolution, I don't know, 400, 500 years ago. And that also rapidly changed society. And arguably, we're still in the industrial society. And now we're in another moment where we're shifting, I think, from a primarily industrial society to a primarily information society. Yeah, some people call it the information age, the internet age, digital age, whatever you want to call it. But there's something that's happening, and I think we're living in the middle of it. Every time these massive shifts happened, people just changed how they lived and how they worked. And the economy just changes fundamentally. And so I think the world is going to look very, very different. Every year, it's looking more and more different. Every year, it feels like the ground is shifting from underneath our feet, especially with the current sort of AI revolution. And so if you project forward, I think decades from now, society is going to look very different. I think most people will be in some capacity working as information workers, working on the internet. When we moved to industrial society, there weren't that many people who made the tools and who were the engineers. There are lots of people who use the tools if we're going to 10x the number of makers of the tools, how does that change the world? To me, it's not about 10xing the number of makers. It's about people actually becoming productive with computers. So the original vision for computing back with the early Silicon Valley got radical ideas around like what computers actually mean for society. People viewed computers as a creative medium, as a medium of expression. But at some point, something changed such that most people are mere consumers of computers. Most people are watching things on computers, TikTok and YouTube, whatever. Communication tools, which is all great. Entertainment and communication is great. But the thing that we lost is that actually being able to program a computer is the way to be productive with a computer. And we have all these applications now that are adding some form of programming. Last decade, we had you know, applications Notion, and Airtable. And so you see that resurgence of actually the way to get a lot of power out of a computer is to learn how to program it. The fundamental way to learn how to program it is to code. Our view is like coding is incidental. What we want to do at Replit is make it such that everyone can program a computer. And we think that's the real power of, of using a computer. That's how you can start a business. That's how you can have sovereignty over your data and your day-to-day work. Yes, there's going to be a lot of makers. We just need a lot more software just as we transition to the society, but also just running your day-to-day life. 
a lot of people are using ChatGPT in that way, where I'm going to use ChatGPT to like write a script, and that script is going to run to scrape something on the internet that I need for my work. We see a lot of people using Replit for that. So it doesn't mean that everyone's going to be industrial software maker. It means that everyone has the power to use software to enhance their lives in some capacity. In some ways, you're really talking about the difference between being a creator and a consumer a bit. When I'm using my phone, I'm very much a consumer. But when I'm using my machine, whether it's my laptop or whatever, I'm much more in the creator mode. In some ways, you're like, hey, let's get back to using the machine more. Yeah, let's get back to actually computing, actually using computers as a way of intelligence augmentation. Again, the early computer pioneers actually didn't see any difference between AI and computers. Von Neumann, who came up with the Von Neumann architecture in his primary document for defining the Von Neumann architecture, he called logic gates neurons. I mean, at some point we had the separation between AI and classical computing, but for people who invented computers and Turing was obsessed with this idea of AI, it's because we've always viewed computers as an extension of our intelligence. But we ended up in a world where most people are mere consumers of these machines. And our mission at Replit is to bring back this idea of actually you can use computers to extend your power, your digital power. And in a world where we 10x or 100x the number of people who have that power to shape it, what does that world look like? Is it just a world of more creativity and more innovation? Or is there some other second-order effect on that world? It's actually hard to predict second-order effects. Alan Kay, again, one of the main forces behind the computer revolution and the personal computer revolution, wrote a paper saying that the computer revolution hasn't happened yet. And what he meant by that is when we had the printing press and then we had mass literacy, it was really hard to predict the second-order effect of that. But he claims, and I agree with him, that a lot of the second-order effect of that was the scientific revolution was perhaps also the industrial revolution, but also democracy and the ability for everyday people to have more power and engage civically. And I think there's going to be a similar profound shift. One thing that I can already see is that I'm seeing a lot of people becoming entrepreneurs, taking control of their lives, people who don't have opportunity getting access to opportunity. It unlocks all sorts of jobs we didn't expect that we need such as people creating art on the internet. I think a lot of them are using coding in some capacity. To You can use mid-journey and stable diffusion, some amount of coding, some amount of runway, whatever. And you're creating these amazing art. You're seeing a lot of interesting things like that. And so there's going to be digital artists. Even putting together a Shopify store has some coding to it. Yeah, all of this is creative activity. And I think it'll just supercharge the ability of people being able to truly program, take control of their tools, I think will just supercharge everything we're seeing today. Replit is an online coding environment, but even today, like most software engineers still use some sort of offline environment where they run everything like local on their machine. Why is it taking so long to move development to the cloud? Been a little surprising for me, especially since I've been working in this space for a long time, how reluctant developers are to even exploring some of these tools. And a lot of it is a cultural thing. Although coding and programming, being a professional developer is such a young industry, it sort of quickly calcified and it became 
very tribal in a lot of ways. People fight over editors, programming languages. And I forgot who said it, but programming progresses one generation at a time. And basically, you need an entire generational shift. And we're seeing with Replit, a lot of the adopters are young people. We have millions of users. Most of them are young people. And they want to be in the cloud because they use everything in the cloud. They want more power. I mean, you can't run AI models on your crappy laptop yeah, unless you buy a $3,000 Mac machine or something like that. And so a lot of people are seeing the need for that, especially as software gets more complicated. And software requires more compute and more resources. And AI is really pushing software to be more like that. But it is a bit of a cultural shift. There's all these psychological aspects to it where I've gone through the trouble of learning how to set up my Python environment. Therefore, young lad, you should also go through that trouble. You know, it's almost this hazing aspect of it. <laughs> if you bring on a new engineer into a company and most companies are still primarily on offline environment. Just setting up their environment can take them the first few days. It can be a pain in the butt and something doesn't work and it doesn't sync well or and they don't have this particular library or it just seems like the cloud would make it so much easier. You're really just saying it's cultural. That's the big reason people don't move to it. The tools haven't been that great. Even Replit just recently got good. Just to be totally transparent recently got to the point where I'm saying, yeah, drop all your tools and go use Replit. That's basically this year. When a new employee joins Replit, it takes them 30 seconds to spin up an environment and start contributing code. 30 seconds. Yeah, amazing. And the other effect, you know, speaking of second-order effects, designers are more likely to contribute code. We see designers passing around these Replit links because I did this Figma design. I can go use ChatGPT or use Replit Ghostwriter. It'll help me prototype it. If I don't understand something, I'll go ask the AI. And now designers can code. And then product managers can code. And so now you have an expanding circle of what it means to be a developer. And I think that will continue to expand. And then your biz ops people can code. And then your marketing people. Well, I could see for a developer how that could be scary too, because then they may not have control over everything. And so you have to give up a little bit more control in a company then. They don't have to be committing to the most sacred, low-level aspect of the infrastructure. But who cares if they write a little bit of React? Come on. <laughs> One concept I've heard you talk about is this idea of Steve Jobs' black billing, which is he created these incredible products, but he also created some sort of expectation that consumers would have no control, couldn't use them, couldn't change them in any type of way. Is it possible to have both really accessible UI and lots of customizability and programmability? So actually, I was reading a book recently, and I coined that phrase, the Steve Jobs Black Belt, before I read the book. I'm a huge fan of him. There's a new book called Make Something Wonderful. It's about his writing. It was compiled by his Lorene Powell Jobs. And basically, at some point after the Apple II success, they found that they've hit some limits to how far they can grow because... They're selling these machines that require the user to program them. And the thing that Steve Jobs arrived at is like, oh, programming should not be a requirement. Therefore, we need to do this GUI things. And that became one conclusion after another until you get to a point where the system's so locked down. It's like, oh, users like, should not worry about how the system runs at all. Users should not be able to customize anything at all. 
And then you have this Apple kind of walled garden ecosystem where the user has very little freedom. Is it possible to harmonize this idea of ease of access and the ability for anyone to use a computer with customization and programming? I absolutely think it is. And not only that, I think that AI will blur the line there. If you've used ChatGPT Code Interpreter, which is an amazing product, basically you're talking to the AI and the AI is like, oh, your question requires me to write some code. So I'm going to write some code and execute it on your behalf. In a way, you're programming using natural language. So I think that will continue to blur. And the idea of programming at some point is just talking to a computer. But again, behind the scenes, you can see that there's a code being executed. You can go look at it. You can copy it. You can hack it. You can fork it. And so this ability of peering behind the scenes and seeing what the AI is doing is going to be crucial. In that world where we have these better code writers, you're working on things like Ghostwriter and these other different code writers that are out there. I assume that just massively not only expands the number of people that could write code, but also takes out a lot of the drudgery of code. And so you could focus much more on the creativity. Is that where you see the world going? Yes. I mean, that's already where the world went. We just published today on our blog a story of an entrepreneur who went from zero to 216,000 ARR in a few months using Replit. And he didn't know how to code before that. And so it's a combination of AI and Replit helped him just start coding. And anytime he has a problem, he figures it out with AI collaboratively and how to do that. And so people are getting these superpowers. And a lot of people who didn't know how to code before but had a lot of ideas, and they were bottlenecked because they don't have a technical partner or co-founder now are able to build these ideas. Is it allowing people who were 1x engineers to be 10x engineers or people who are 10x engineers to be 100x engineers? Or how do you see that multiplying effect? One question is where it's going and the question is what the impact it has today. I think actually the impact today is more profound on beginners than it is on experts. Because on experts, you're basically making them type less. Because they know what the code that they want to write and Copilot and Ghostwriter, the autocomplete version of it, is just reducing how much code you're typing. It's a marginal productivity boost. It could be a huge margin. It could be, some people would say 30, 40%, 50%. We've calculated around that range internally, like how much we're saving people from typing code. But those who are earlier in the careers or have never coded before, you know, you can't even put a multiple on it because they wouldn't otherwise be able to do it. So it's infinity X. As emptotically goes down, as you're more of an expert, that's why you see a lot of really hardcore experts don't even look at these tools because they don't need them. That being said, I think where we're going, you're going to see that multiplier productivity become more uniform. And I think where we're going is not just a typing aid. It is agents that feel like employees and teammates. You give them higher level tasks and they can break down those tasks into different branches and different tasks and they go execute them and then you're reviewing their code. It's really going to feel like working with a coworker and we're building that at Replit. It does seem like you'll need fewer people to create something. And so you need someone who's organizing and coordinating all these types of things. If you make the analogy to a movie, you might still need someone who can think of the characters and the high-level plot, et cetera, but you might not need the graphics people anymore. 
the writer might be able to create the entire movie just by herself. You could have a scenario where I'm not a front end person. I'm just a bad, or I don't know this or that, or now you can be much more full stack using these tools. A hundred percent. I think the thing that really attracted me to being a programmer, continuing to be a software person is that unlike other industries where you get siloed and hyper-specialized, programmers have the ability to be across the stack and also be someone who cares about the user and the business and the product. And I've always worked that way as an engineer. I've always wanted to know what the users want. I wanted to always see the impact of my work. I wanted to get feedback from the market. I wanted to work across the stack. And I think the best engineers just like that. And the people who build like really great companies, whether it's Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, all these stories you read of people, they're typically not only talented programmers, but they're able to do a lot of different things. There's some belief that we're just going to see the number of employees per company will go down, but the number of companies will go up. Are you in that camp? To some extent, I think there's enough inertia at some big companies where even if you increase productivity on an individual level, it will actually be a drop in a bucket on a company-wide scale. The problem with these companies is not individual productivity. It's actually the bureaucracy. And so nothing will solve the bureaucracy until they have an Elon takeover. (laughs) In some ways, the way to solve bureaucracy is just to have fewer people. Bureaucracy is inevitable. The more people you have, the more bureaucracy... The best case, it scales linearly. In the worst case, it scales exponentially. But my claim is that a lot of these companies are run by professional managers that are not able to make radical changes for whatever reason. And I think that's the higher order bit. But let's talk about where I think it's going to actually make an impact. I think startups are going to be a lot more productive. I think we're going to see a lot more startups. I think we're going to see a lot more of the solo entrepreneur, the two or three people, kind of Silicon Valley calls them somewhat condescendedly lifestyle businesses. But I think some of these lifestyle businesses could be really, really profound. You don't have to raise a dollar of capital. Yeah, you mentioned the blog, this guy's making 200K a year from zero, and that 200K could grow to 2 million a year. I mean, that's an amazing business, and he could be running it all himself with limited costs. Totally. I mean, that's the thing that gets me excited. Of course, I'd like to see more Silicon Valley startups. Those are always great. But what I'm even more excited about is someone in Africa being able to build a business and sustain his life and his family and even his community from revenue from that business. That's the really exciting, I think, vision is to democratize the thing that made Silicon Valley special, which is the firm creation and the ability for these companies to be very lean and have a lot of impact and grow rapidly. How do you think of like the winners and losers there? Obviously, right now, the first order winners are the chip companies like NVIDIA. Over time, where do you think the winners and losers shake up as we move much more into this world? Yeah, I started thinking about it quite early because I was confident that AI is going to have a huge impact on software. That's why we started investing in it early as a company. But also, when I started playing around with GPT-2 circa 2019, I knew this was foundational breakthrough. I started investing in companies actually in 2020, just as an angel investor, small trucks here and there. And then later on, as I had a little more capital, 
I start thinking really deeply about how do you actually, okay, if you had this belief, how do you actually make money from it? How do you allocate capital? Turns out it's a really hard question. And I have a lot more sympathy to investors now because even if you know something is going to grow very rapidly, it's actually hard to figure out. In the middle of a systemic industry change, it is super hard to figure out what the landscape looks like. Some predictions I've made early on, I think, turned out to be true. One of the things I thought about is the foundation model ecosystem will collect the cloud where there's two or three major players. And maybe the first one has most of the market share, AWS, and there's some large drop-off to the second one, Anthropic, and then third, fourth, and so on and so forth. I think that's really played out this way. I think this jury's still out, but you know, OpenAI is now billion dollar company, which is pretty amazing because they had, what, 10 million last year? And that's really profound. But then, okay, where does the value accrue? I mean, the foundation model companies are going to make a lot of money, but it's going to be more of a volume type business because the price per token will have this race to the bottom dynamic. Not entirely, as with the cloud, because they're going to have more to run hardware and talent and IP and all of that. But there's going to be a price pressure downwards. And I think there are a lot of applications to be built. There's this GPT wrapper thing where, oh, this company is just a GPT wrapper, which is somewhat true. There are a lot of companies that were immediately disrupted. They grew really fast, got disrupted by chat GPT. But I think it's overstated as a problem. I think there's a lot of companies that are able to build a superior product with some technical moats, with some counter-positioned place in the market such as perplexity. Perplexity is this, I think they call it now Ask Engine, but it's yeah, like a search engine. And it's building a business in the middle of the Bing and Google's core businesses and scaling and it's growing fast. And so... And just having a UI that appeals to certain types of people actually is a moat. This concept of counter-positioning, which is although you're building a business inside the heart of another big competitor they are structurally unable to compete with you because it will somehow disrupt their core business if they try to respond to you. That's a crucial thing. And and it is always possible to engineer these. Or randomly, I think people arrive at these ideas sort of semi-randomly. But as an investor, you can look at places where there's counter-positioning. It is hard to know as an investor where even if you knew in the 1940s and 50s that airline travel was going to explode investing in the airlines was not a good bet. Even though it was useful to consumers and consumers really benefited from it, you know, you may have want to invest like in hotels near airports or something. It's hard to know how to actually make the bet on uh, societal change. It's super hard, turns out. I mean, even with the NVIDIA bet, there's so much geopolitical risk there. The US banned chip export to China and then now just to the Middle East. So the NVIDIA can't sell to the Middle East. So who's to tell which market is going to get bad next? Who's to tell what's going to happen with Taiwan and, and China and TSMC? Which is where all their supply comes from. It's a very uncertain market. So it is hard. I think over the next two years, things will be a little clearer. But I think that age-old strategy is just find really great startups, products you would enjoy to use and you think are, are great and could be a great investment. And at like the pre-seed and seed level, I think it's always a good investment to make. Now, if I had to name, let's say, the top 10 tech companies that I'm most bullish on, I would definitely put Replit on there. I'd put Vercel on the list. Which ones would you add? 
these startups are both Series B plus. Is that what you're thinking? Or yeah, exactly. Not Microsoft companies that you think are really going to change the future, but maybe not as well known to our audience. I think there's something with Notion and Coda that is interesting. They both moved on AI very quickly and both created really very interesting products. And instead of their vision, it accelerated their vision of end user programmable documents. And now you can use AI to program these documents. So I would definitely bet on that. I think a lot of the creative tools are super interesting. Runway ML, talked about it earlier, you can make videos now with it. And yeah, it's amazing. I've been a big fan of video essays on YouTube, if you've ever watched those, but I'm not a big reader, I'm a slow reader. And so I like audiobooks, but I also like video content. So there's a lot of video creators that create this really cool essays. And typically the videos that they're making, a lot of it is foot archival footage or illustrations or what have you. So I always thought if there was an AI that can help me make those, I would make more video essays right on my blog, but I would love to make video essays of those. And I made one video essay once and I couldn't use AI at the time. It wasn't there yet. But I think now that'll create a lot more creativity around video. Obviously, if you write a blog, do you think you'd just be able to send your blog somewhere and it'll basically do everything else for you? With prompting, yeah. I think with a lot of prompting, here's the style I want. And then you can select frame by frame and make edits using prompts and things like that. Okay. Yeah, that would be amazing, actually. I can tell you from personal experience, just using just something like a mid-journey is just incredible. You're using it with my kids and just watching their delight and I always wish I could draw on something before and done the graphics, but that just wasn't in my skill set. Now with Midjourney, I can create the most wondrous things. It's incredible. That's absolutely right. One of the things you've done in REPL, which I'm really impressed with, is really build a community, not just build product. How do you think that through and what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs who are trying to do that? When we started doing it, it wasn't like a thing that you got rewarded for. I think at some point, having a community of a lot of investors, especially around Web3, if you have a community. And now you see people in their fundraising deck talking about how many members on Discord they have and how many GitHub stars they have. I think it went a little too far <laughs> towards like rewarding startups too much for community building. Yeah, in terms of not even building a product or something like that. I think for us, it was always what we enjoyed to do. What we enjoyed doing is building products, but also hanging out with the people that use our products. In a lot of ways, we're building, yes, we're programming tools, but we're also building toys that people can be creative with. And we love and enjoy working in and playing with as well. So we created hackathons. We spent a lot of time getting feedback from our users, so on and so forth. And so it just came natural. It wasn't a strategy. At some point, it was obvious to us that this is going to be useful for our business, and therefore we doubled down on it. But it could also be a distraction. You kind of want to worry about that a little bit. You see a lot of companies where early Facebook, for example, if the community was angry at every change that they made, if they cowered to that, you know, Facebook would not be where it is today. And you see that with Reddit and other things. So. You have to manage it carefully. And you have to make sure it is not something that holds you back as well. It is an effort to put into that. A couple of personal questions. Your wife, Haya, is a co-founder of Replit. What's it like co-founding a company with your spouse? It's interesting. I think a lot of people can't imagine themselves working with their spouse. 
a lot of the time people ask this question because they're trying to simulate it in the brain that. The difference is Kai and I actually met at work. We worked together. She's a designer. I'm an engineer. Even when we were dating after I stopped working with her, I would ask her to help me design some of my open source projects and side projects and things like that. So it was just natural. It was never intentional. It just happened organically and naturally. There are some challenges with it. One of the challenges is it makes it very hard to actually disconnect from work because if you have something bothering you, you want to talk about it. So if the other person wants to actually take a break, they can't because you want to talk about it and so on and so forth. So you have to set some rules around, okay, we're not talking about work during this hour of dinner or with our kids. But I think it's very workable and there's legends in the industry that have done it. We have Paul Graham and Jessica and it has it. Eventbrite. Yeah, Eventbrite and now there's Canva as well that was passive. So it can work well, but you tread carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Besides for the Okay, during these hours, we don't talk or some rules around any other interesting takeaways or anything you wish you had knew going into it? I think there's a strength. I mean, not only as my co-founder, but my brother is one of our earliest engineers and he's still with the company. There's a feeling that we have that no matter what, if we're back to the three of us, we can rebuild this thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this family bond and you can just sit down and do it again if we have to. So that gives you a lot of strength. A lot of our founding members of the company are still with us as well. And that bond is very strong. Other things to look out for, maybe I'm not that reflective on it, but I just never try to make a big deal out of it. Even in the office, and a lot of people don't know that they'll come, they work at Ruffle for a year, and they might not know that Fast is my brother, for example. <laughs> we try not to create some kind of inner click or what have you and try to really keep the culture open. You're also, as you mentioned earlier, an active investor, and I like to think of it as a dual threat CEO. Some of the advantages of being the dual threat CEO is that you can maybe understand deals better. You can get in deals better. How else does being a CEO help you be a better investor? Let's talk about how being an investor helps you a better CEO. Okay, because that's the, probably the harder one. That was my next question. And then we'll come back to that other one, but this is, I think, interesting. When I started getting investor updates, oh my God, I look at these updates. I'm like, did I write that way? And I went back and write and looked at them. It's just rambling. <laughs> First time founders will just send blog posts to investors. Investors receiving tens or hundreds of those, they're not going to want to read your thing. And so the first thing you notice is how you communicate with the investor. It's going to be very important for them to be helpful. If you have some graph or something traction on the top and some kind of app, they're going to like, okay, I understand that what's happening with the business. Okay, I can help with this. That's all you need from at least angel investors, board members, whatever. You can treat them differently. So that's one way I started reflecting my behavior when I deal with investors is to actually give them information they can digest and act on really quickly. The other thing is you, you have your know, finger to the wind and you can understand where the wind is blowing with regards to the market and investor sentiment. It'll help you raise rounds and close rounds and all of that because you're plugged into the investor psychology, as it were, and people just are talking all the time. You can feel what they're bearish or bullish on, and that's very helpful. On the question of how being a CEO helped as an investor, it's the same thing. You can sympathize with the founder. You're implicitly founder first, you're implicitly more founder friendly than any other professional investor because you're literally in their shoes. You can feel their pain. 
and you can understand what they're going through. And you're currently, it's different. A lot of professional investors used to be a founder and they can still sympathize, but it's different than when you're actually currently going through it. Right, exactly. It is totally different because maybe the first year or two after you stop being a founder, you kind of remember that, but at some point you're going to forget the day-to-day ups and downs and the emotional state of a founder. Now, it's not uncommon to hear people say that maybe the U.S. isn't as attractive to foreign talent as it used to be. If you were a teenager in Jordan today, do you think you'd still want to come to the U.S. to work and be an entrepreneur? Why do they say that? Now it's much more easy to create a company virtually. Moving to Silicon Valley isn't as important. I can raise money and where I can hire talent all over the place. And so obviously, it's still a great place to be, but maybe it's not as important as it used to be. Yeah, I got it. I think that is true that you can build companies. In Jordan now, I see a lot of really cool companies. Some products I use, I don't know that they're based somewhere else in the world, which is very interesting. Some companies I feel like, oh, it's a Silicon Valley company, I'm sure. It turns out and it's Australia or... Bulgaria or something, yeah. And that's really cool. I think that the attraction to the US has more to do with the intangible things than really a lot of the tangible things. Yes, you can raise money elsewhere. Yes, you can do all of that. But the culture here and the feeling you get as an American of, screw it, I can do it. I can do it myself. American exceptionalism, the sort of rebellious aspect of it, I think it's very helpful for entrepreneurs and founders. It's in the water, so somehow it's contagious? I think so. It's in the founding documents of the country. (laughs) If you don't like the government, pick up your weapon. (laughs) Although, don't do that. (laughs) There's a rebellious aspect really in the core of the country of we can do it. We can pull ourselves by the bootstrap and do that. I do think it's in the water day to day. I feel the level of freedom, independence that I have here versus elsewhere in the world. Uh, I think that's very special. A lot of people would want to change that and don't like that. And especially as you're an immigrant, you become very protective of it because you know how special it is. But people who grew up here who have certain ideologies or leanings actually do not know how special it is. And they will miss it dearly if they actually succeed in attacking it. What are some of the things that you're worried about? Well, I think the attack on merits is terrible. The idea that merit has always been a cover for some bigotry or racism is just preposterous. The idea that America rewards talent and rewards merit more than any other country in the world. And there's a lot of ideas coming out that, no, actually saying you're pro-merit or meritocracy. And some people say it right. It's not implicit. They say it explicitly that this is some cover for some bigotry, which is absolutely preposterous. And the idea that you have to take into consideration anything other than the person's skills or talents when hiring or when promoting is also really bad and terrible and will get you into really terrible places as a country. And you've seen that in history. I think those are the ideas I'm really worried about. One of the reasons I think a lot of immigrant groups have been so successful in America is they come with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. It's not that they're not discriminated against, often historically have been very discriminated against when they come to the US, but it's, I'll show you type of thing. And so instead of that discrimination, making them think they're not worthy of it, it makes them work twice as hard. And so you see all these incredible successes from the immigrant story. And somehow that does seem like it's being rewritten in a 
in a, oh, well, you can't succeed, so don't even try type of thing. Yeah, and they will try to recast your success as something else. There's this presidential candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy, that I don't know much about him, but my feeling of him is that he's a genuinely successful person that have done a lot of interesting things. But now they're trying to recast his success as some form of he was somewhat favored or some form of grift or something like that. Anytime there's stories that counteract the you know, far left narrative of actually America is not a place where merit actually succeeds, it gets recast as some form of something nefarious happened for that person to actually achieve their success. And one of the things I like about you, whether I follow you on Twitter, I, by the way, I encourage our listeners to follow you, A. Massad on Twitter. I love it. And I've seen it in many other podcasts and stuff like that. You're not really afraid to speak your mind. And that does seem somewhat uncommon among CEOs and stuff. Most CEOs are pretty heads down. How do you think about your public persona? I'm an American now. And I've heard that part of being an American is that you get this thing called free speech. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm trying to leverage it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> you can say things that other places you go to prison for. That's amazing. That's profound. I really like it. I have a very concrete worldview and ideas and, that I, and principles that I think are worth voicing. And it's also a way to update my thinking. If I was wrong on something or there's some debate that happens where I could actually understand the other side better, that helps me a lot as well. And I think ultimately... I'm not building a business just for the sake of building a business. Although I like building business, I like investment, I like money, I like all of this stuff. But really, I mean, embedded at the core of Replit and everything that I do and a lot of what I invest in is a certain worldview. And that worldview is opportunity should be more accessible worldwide, not just in the US, that we would be much better off if people are more creators and less consumers. We would be much better off with more entrepreneurs and less corporate drones in a way, we would be much better off if we are free and as sovereign as we can be as individuals. It sounds very much of an empowerment. You want to help empower people and you want people to feel empowered to do things. Yes, that's right. Okay, last two questions that we like to ask. What is a conspiracy theory that you believe? Oh, interesting. Make sure I say something I don't get canceled for. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any of those wild beliefs about aliens or any of the fun stuff. I've looked into all of them. One thing that's interesting is what happened during COVID, I think is something that we need to come to terms with as a country. There was a lot of obfuscation. There was a lot of lying on behalf of officials. And there was conspiracies that more and more we're learning about every day of how they treated the American people like subjects as opposed to people with a mind and an ability to reason and, and think through things. Yeah, I think it's an unfolding story. I just think we can't turn the page. There was an story in The Atlantic saying, just forgive and forget whatever happened, all the authoritarian and forceful things that happened. We need to move past it, whatever. No, but we need to actually talk about it. And I do think that there was a lot of lying and that needs to come to light. So maybe one thing, I, one conspiracy theory I believe is that we were lied to during COVID a lot for whatever reason, I don't know why, including the issue about the origins of COVID. And we need to get to the bottom of it and we need to figure that out. I think that would be healthy as a country. And when do you think it's okay to lie and obfuscate the truth for the public good? I have a friend and he's a cancer researcher 
he had a study that in certain cases that nicotine was not harmful to people over a certain age. I forgot exactly the study. And he cares deeply about lung cancer, but he got a lot of pressure from his colleagues and people also who felt similar to him not to publish the study because in some ways it ran a little bit counter to what they were preaching, which is, hey, don't smoke. And so you could see that he doesn't want to encourage people to smoke, but at the same time, he also wants to progress science. And so he's got this tension that he had to work through. The extreme should be always tell the truth, even at all scenarios, all the time. Others, okay, we have to protect people. How do you think about that? That's a good question. I'm actually familiar with a lot of the studies on nicotine that are counteract to what people say. Nicotine has a neuroprotective aspect of it. Also, it actually eases some mental illnesses. They found that most schizophrenics actually smoke, 95% of them, and it helps them in some capacity. There's diet things, et cetera, too. My view is that truth is important. And again, my starting point, the point of empowerment, the point of treating people like adults who can reason and think through things, I would start from that principle. But then there are ways to craft a message such that people understand it. I craft the nuance such that people understand that nuance. And I think the tricky part about that is the media and the way it's working today because they want to find sensational headlines. So the headline could be from that study, smoking is good for you. They might write something like that. Smoking study finds is good for you. And that's just stupid. I don't know how we get past that. I think Twitter community notes is actually very interesting. X, have you looked at that all that much? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think if there was a web scale product that maybe any article you open, there's some context that was agreed upon by some neutral observer. And the cool thing about the Twitter algorithm is that it finds people who are maximally divergent in their views. And they agree on a note, that's when it shows the note. I think something like that could help with the media spin on certain things. But I would start from the principle of always tell the truth, especially in science. And then you need to figure out what are the second order effects of those and treat them as symptoms and not obfuscate the truth. Because I think once you do that, that amount of power vested in anyone to actually be able to tell falsehoods and to be able to lie, especially in government officials, eventually it will be in the power of people you wouldn't agree with and potentially evil or bad people that you wouldn't want this power to be at the end hands of. Think of just trusting experts in general. You know, if someone who might be an expert on this particular type of cancer, but they're not necessarily an expert about on economics or on society, and you, know, you have someone who understands how diseases spread, but they might not understand that closing schools is bad for child development and their mental health. And so trusting experts in one very narrow fact, they actually have a very broad broad impact in what they do. So how do you think we should think about these experts? One thing that happened during COVID is this idea of elevating scientists to the point of priesthood. They should tell the truth. They should try to explain it and summarize it in ways that policymakers can understand it. And then elected representatives should be able to make these decisions on these policies because they're incentivized to do well by people who elected them. That's in an ideal scenario. That's how it works. I think some scientists could be in positions of actually making those decisions, but they should be democratically elected. You know, that's how our system works. There are, just to kind of be nuanced about it, there are places where, like Singapore, Singapore's government is fairly technocratic. It's run by engineers and scientists and all of that. They do a good job. There are 
ways in which you can have people in positions of power that are technical and that understands the science, but also understands policy and things like that. That works as well, but it's not really our system of government here in the U.S. So that's the trade-off you want to think about. The last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? One thing that's been on my mind recently is that for a long time, startups were supposed to launch early and be embarrassed by their product. I think today, depending on the market you're in, a lot of software, a lot of things have matured and people's expectations are a lot higher. And a lot of the low-hanging fruit has been actually picked. A lot of times, it actually makes more sense to be more ambitious, to put your heart and soul into coming out with a product that's polished. We just launched our deployment product a couple of days ago. And it's the most polished product that we've ever worked on and it took almost a year. And the reason is because we're entering a fairly mature market with a lot of different players. We need to actually be better for people to pick us. Again, modulated by how mature the market is. If, you, if it's something net new, like ChatGPT first experience was kind of crappy. It's a net new thing on the market. If you're trying to build something superior to existing things on the market, take the time to actually make it better and to have a really great first impression. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Thank you, Amjab, for joining us, World of Dads. As I mentioned, I follow you on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider reading this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com and by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of DAS. Check it out at flexcapital.com.